Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Daniel 6, 2, uh, 6, 1 through 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Then the king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing may be, might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the, mouths, and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to keep it open to Daniel chapter 6 as we pray together and jump in. Father God, as we open this chapter, this famous chapter from the book of Daniel this morning, I pray that you would use it to remind us of your faithfulness, your supremacy, and your mercy. May we be encouraged by these words this morning and reminded more than anything of the love that you show us in the sacrifice of your Son. We pray these things, Lord, in his name. Amen. Something that I have asked a lot of people over the years is how they decided what to name their children. It's a good way to get to know someone, and it's something that I'm genuinely interested in. Lately, I've been thinking about this a lot because Jessica and I are in the process of thinking about names for future children ourselves. Lots of people, when I ask this question, tell stories about the importance of particular family names or about people from history or Scripture that have played an important role in their lives. Sometimes the names that they've chosen are a way to honor a cultural background, or they tell me the meaning of the names that they've chosen, the the, the background behind those names, and how those meanings represent some of the hopes that they have for their children. Others tell me that they stumbled across a name that they loved, and they can't really explain why, but they just couldn't shake it. It stuck with them, and they wanted to use it. But the one thing no one has ever said is, it didn't really matter. Uh, We let the doctor choose the name. (laughs) In Scripture, names carry a lot of significance. Often they tell us something about the character of the person that we're reading about. Even if in our culture we don't put quite that much significance on names, we still know that they are important. We don't take the responsibility of choosing a name very lightly because there's something intangibly meaningful in what a child is named. When Daniel's parents were deciding what to call him, it seems like they were thinking about that because his name is literally just a mashed together Hebrew sentence, and that sentence is, God is my judge. It was a reminder that his parents wanted him to hear every single day of his life and something they wanted to make sure that he never forgot. God is my judge. The one with ultimate, unrivaled, unchallenged authority. But judge means more than just the one who evaluates and determines guilt or innocence. Biblically, this word for judge also means one who upholds justice, who vindicates his people. 
Which is why the same word is used in Psalm 54 where the writer prays, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. It also means the defender of the vulnerable, which is why the writer of Psalm 68 uses this word when he describes God as the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. So Daniel's parents gave him a name that proclaimed not only God's supreme authority, but also his merciful care. It was a reminder that Daniel would need throughout his life. But in chapter 1 of this book, which we've been studying our way through, Daniel and his friends were taken captive in Babylon, and they were given new names. Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar, which is a testimony not to the, the god of Judah, but the Babylonian god whose name was Bel. So the literal meaning of his new name was, may the god Bel protect him. By renaming his new subjects, this Babylonian king was attempting to rewrite their identity and to incorporate them fully into the culture and religion of his nation, Babylon. And so, on page one of this book, the conflict, which will emerge in various ways throughout the narrative, is established. Will Daniel and his people, captive in Babylon, forget that God is their judge and their defender? Or... Now that they are far from home, will they remember, in spite of their circumstances, in spite of the fact that their city and their temple are destroyed, will they remember that God is their judge and their defender? Will they begin to look to their captors as the ones with supreme and unrivaled power and authority? It is a question relevant not just in ancient Babylon, but throughout the history of God's people and in our lives today. When the world around us is pressing in on all sides, when all that remains to us is ruin and disaster, when all hope seems utterly lost to us, will faith remain or will it wither? By God's grace, He has given us the book of Daniel. And in hearing its message, our faith might survive this exile and see the day of restoration that God has promised us. Because in this book, God reminds His people of the truth in Daniel's name, that He is the judge and defender of His people no matter what we endure in this life. Daniel is at a front row seat to see the truth of that at every turn in his life. As a young man, he heard the words of the prophets in his home country who warned that unless that nation, Judah, turned from its idolatry, then God would bring conquerors from the east who would capture these people and carry them away. Daniel watched his people scoff at those warnings and ally themselves with nations like Egypt in an effort to keep themselves safe. They were not afraid of the words of these prophets, but God's warning would not be overturned by an alliance with a nation that God had already subdued in the, in the history of these same people. And so Daniel watched as God kept his word, as he raised up a nation and brought it to Judah's doorstep. Then in Babylon, Daniel saw it play out again and again and again, which we've seen in our study of this book. In chapter 2, after successfully interpreting the dream of the king, Daniel was promoted and given an important administrative role in the capital city. And he said to the king, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of wisdom that I have any more than all the living, but by the God who reveals mysteries. When some of Daniel's friends were cast into a furnace for refusing to worship a statue of the king, they went in praising God and they emerged from that furnace unscathed by the fire. Over and over and over again, Daniel has 
had the chance to see that God is the judge and the defender of his people, that no matter what the circumstances that he finds himself in are or how dire the situation is, God remains supreme. His authority remains unchallenged, and he is the defender of his people. And that even in their exile, he is there with them. Even though these kings from Babylon and Persia like to think of themselves as gods among mankind, they live and breathe and hold their thrones because of the divine ordinance of Daniel's God. No matter how powerful kings and empires appear, no matter how fortified their cities may seem, no matter how untouchable they may claim to be, none of them are beyond his reach. The one who raises up kings according to what he ordains and just as easily sweeps them away from power. Perhaps the most significant example of that came in the last two verses of chapter 5, which we looked at last week. Those verses say simply, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It's a concise summary of one of history's most significant events. And even though Daniel records it here in just two sentences, ancient readers of this book would have remembered well the cataclysmic events that precipitated the transfer of power from Babylon to a Persian king named Cyrus. In the 20 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death, Babylon had four kings. It was a tumultuous time for the Babylonian kingdom, the last of which spent the majority of his reign in Arabia, far from the seat of power. And he left the responsibility of governance to his son, who was ill-prepared for the role, as we saw last week in chapter 5. So these Persians saw their opportunity and they seized it. Historical records of the toppling of Babylonian control are scant, but it's fair to assume that it was an incredibly violent, horrifying war between two of antiquity's only true superpowers. The passage simply says, Babylon's rule ended, purges began. That it happened because of what God said he would do in chapter 5. Daniel who is now in his 80s, as we open chapter 6, has lived through the fall of Jerusalem, captured at the hands of an immensely powerful Babylonian army, and now the fall of Babylon to an even mightier force. At a time when Babylon's military seemed absolutely unstoppable, any power significant enough to crush it as decisively as Persia did must have seemed absolutely incomprehensibly strong. Yet, it was raised up by God for God's purposes according to God's promises, and Daniel knows a day will come when it will be swept away just as Babylon was. Daniel has seen the rise and fall of kingdoms according to the will of God, and through it, he has seen the truth contained in his own name. God is my judge. When he says he will raise up a nation, he does. When he says that an empire will fall, it falls. And now, as we come to the most famous passage in this book, these things that Daniel has witnessed, the truth that he has been reminded of every day of his life, is the basis for his resolute confidence. Even though he's been through a lot already, being thrown to the lions is probably the most frightening situation that he's been in so far. And even though he had the chance to defend himself from such a frightening situation, he did not do it. Because he knew that every strength that this world provides is a false refuge, but that God himself is a true refuge, and that one day, 
God would provide a lasting refuge for his people. The passage begins with Darius, the new king in town, and his plans to establish his government. He's just absorbed what was left of the Babylonian Empire after this war, and the territory that he now rules is so incredibly broad that he knows that he needs an extensive bureaucracy to manage it. So he appoints 120 satraps or regional governors to oversee this giant territory that he rules. And over them, he sets three administrators. One of those administrators is Daniel. He wants the very best people in these roles because the text tells us in verse 2, it was their job to make sure that the king did not suffer loss. They're responsible for making sure that everyone pays their fair share of taxes, the taxes that pay for his military, his lifestyle, and for the elaborate building projects that come with every empire. Like the Babylonians before him, he recognizes that Daniel is gifted and wise, that he's a capable administrator and advisor, and so he's appointed to one of these very top positions. And it isn't very long after that before Daniel rises above the other two administrators because of his exceptional qualities, we're told in this passage. It's a mark of Daniel's commitment to honesty and hard work, even if it benefits the kingdom that is now holding him captive. Though, as we'll see in this passage, he is only willing to go so far. He will seek the welfare of his captors, but he will not disobey his God. So far, that arrangement has satisfied the Persians who hold him captive and the Persian king who has appointed him to this top position. Darius made a plan to promote him to second in command over all the satraps and administrators subject only to the authority of Darius himself. And so just as he did in Babylon, Daniel serves well and gets noticed for it. He serves honestly, he works hard, and he gets promoted for it. But that commitment and Daniel's success make the people around him jealous The other administrators try to dig up some dirt on him to bring to the king. They want to discredit him and find grounds for his dismissal. And so they comb through his records, looking for something out of place, a gold coin or two, perhaps, that have found their way into Daniel's pocket instead of the king's storehouse. Perhaps because that sort of corruption was just so common, they assumed it would be easy to find a skeleton in Daniel's closet. But they cannot find anything. Daniel is spotless. He really is serving well and honestly. And if they really cared about the kingdom they serve or the king that they serve, that would be good news for them. But they don't. They care about themselves and they just want to destroy Daniel. But in the process of digging into Daniel's records to accuse him, they learned a lot of other things about him and they came up with a plan that will use that information to their advantage. They know that Daniel is a very religious man, that he prays a lot. So they go to the king, who is easily flattered, and they propose that he sign a law saying that for a month, the people in the kingdom will only be allowed to pray to Darius himself, and that if anyone does otherwise, they should be thrown to the lion's den. Darius goes for it. He doesn't really hesitate. He says, yeah, that's a good idea. That seems very reasonable. Let's do it. From his perspective, it's a good idea to unify the people of his empire this newly giant empire that he rules, to unify them under his rule. But Daniel's enemies knew it wouldn't take long for Daniel to fall into their trap. And as it turns out, they were right. Verse 10 says that when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, when he learned it had been published, 
the day it was published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window, with the windows open toward Jerusalem. Three times, a day he, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He doesn't go to the king to complain about how this new law was unfair and unjust. He doesn't go to these other administrators to tell them that they are selfish, backstabbing jerks. He went home and prayed like he did every other day of his life. He didn't even bother to close the windows. More than that, the passage specifically says that he gave thanks, which is remarkable to me. He probably knows that this whole law was put into place just to make sure that he lost his life, and he does not waver for a second. He prays with a thankful heart as he does every single other day looking toward Jerusalem. Daniel is committed to prayer because he knows who he's praying to. His life and his name testify to this. He remembers also the words of 1 Kings chapter 8, which were written centuries earlier. In that passage, Israel's king, Solomon, had just finished building the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that Daniel saw destroyed. It's the very high point in Israel's history. They dwell in a land that was promised to their ancestor and delivered to them by miraculous victory. And they have built a temple complex that is their pride and joy, the very crown jewel of their national identity. And on the day that the Ark of the Covenant that God made with his people was brought into the temple, that King Solomon prayed over the people and said, if these people sin against you and you are angry with them and you give them to an enemy, yet if they turn their heart in the, uh, if they turn their, their heart in, in the captive land of the enemy, let me start over. <laughs> if these people sin against you and you are angry with them and you give them to an enemy so that they are carried away to the captive land of the enemy, yet if they turn in their heart in the land to which you have given them as captives and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have carried them captive and they pray to you, toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Daniel has taken those words to heart. There is no law on the books that says he must pray three times a day. There is no command that he prays facing Jerusalem. He does it because his heart is so inclined to seek the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God that he cannot help it. And he is thankful because he knows that whatever calamity he endures in this life, God is there with him in the midst of it. And as one of the captives that Solomon mentioned in his prayer, Daniel knows that the only way, the only way that he and his people will survive this exile and make it back home is if God wills it, if their judge wills it. So he prays. Every day he prays. Even when it will risk his life, he prays, just like his enemies knew that he would. He did not even close the window. So it took exactly one day for their plan to work. And they go back to the king and they remind him of the law that he signed, that anyone caught praying to anyone but Darius himself would be thrown to the lions. And Darius says, yes, yes, I remember the law that I signed yesterday, guys. And then he says, in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be repealed. 
That phrase is repeated a few times in this chapter and refers to an important cultural expectation of the Persian Empire. The emperor was supposed to be guided by the gods, so there should never be a situation in which he has to repeal a law. He should never make a mistake if he is guided by the gods. So if Darius were to change his mind now, it would mean admitting that he made a mistake. And that would be an enormous embarrassment that would weaken his claims of divinely ordained supremacy. It would fly in the face of the law that he signed yesterday that he is someone worthy to be prayed to. It's not necessarily that he cannot change his mind. It's that everyone would doubt him if he did. The interesting thing is that he is the one who brings this up here. Maybe that's because he's expecting these advisors and people that have come to ask him about it to change the law, to change his mind in some way, to make an exception to the rigid rule that he signed into law yesterday. But of course, that is not what they want. They want to make sure that he doesn't change his mind. They are glad to hear him say it. And they tell him, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the degree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. It's an open and shut case. Daniel must be thrown to the lions, despite the fact that that's the last thing that Darius wants. He is greatly distressed, we read in verse 14, and determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. The king doesn't want to lose his best advisor and servant, but his efforts fail. The other administrators remind him threateningly that the law cannot be changed. So Darius gives the order, however reluctantly, and says to Daniel as they throw him into the lion's den, may your God who you serve continually rescue you. And then the chamber was closed with a stone cover and sealed by the king himself. There are many ways that Daniel might have tried to avoid this outcome. He might have assumed that as a high court official, he could keep himself safeguarded, that his life was safe because he was second in command, after all, in the Persian Empire, the, the largest military the world had ever seen, who could have had his enemies arrested or worse. But that is, of course, what led the others to scheme against him in the first place, the fact that he has this authority. He might have assumed that if he did his work well and served the interests of the king, he would be protected by the king. He knows that he's a good worker, an asset to the throne, so he could have depended on Darius to keep him safe. But Darius spent a day determined to rescue Daniel from his own decree, and he couldn't do it. He might have thought that as long as he was well-liked and honest and faithful, he would be safe from betrayal. The other administrators looked for dirt on him, and when they found nothing... They were even more determined to take him out. And he was probably tempted to think that as long as he was faithful to God, that he was, if he was diligent in prayer and obedient to the law, that God would protect him from harm. That is what Darius assumed when he said, maybe your God, who you continually serve, will save you. But it is Daniel's commitment to God, his faithfulness and his obedience that is ultimately used against him to land him in the lion's den in the first place. The temptation to look for safety and security in all these places must have weighed on him. As he saw the decree being posted, when he looked down from the window and saw the other administrators watching him pray, and when he was lowered into the dark, terrifying pit where the lions stood waiting for him. Being backed into a corner brings out the worst in us. 
being in danger, especially the sort of life-threatening danger that Daniel is in right now, makes people desperate. And it reveals where our sense of security really lies. And it's that reason that we have chosen to study through the book of Daniel this fall, because we know what God's people have always known, that we are exiles like Daniel, strangers in a strange land, trying to navigate the fine line between serving the good of our neighbors in this world and being faithful and obedient to God. It is a life that invites challenges. And as Christians throughout history and in some parts of the world today know all too well, outright rejection and persecution. Faced with those threats, where will we turn? Like Daniel, like he was surely tempted, we might be tempted to look to our own strength to provide the security that we long for. He had authority over his accusers and could have used it to silence them. We aren't in exactly the same situation, but we could certainly look for ways to gain advantage over our own adversaries and in the world that we live in. When faced with hardship, our first reaction is often to look for opportunities to give ourselves some sort of advantage, to scrape together the resources that we need to make it out. Or, like Daniel might have, we are tempted often to think that as long as we are contributing to the well-being of our communities, we will be protected, that if we are liked by the world, we will be celebrated, applauded, welcomed by the world. There is some temptation then, therefore, to avoid certain topics or soften some of what Scripture teaches in an effort to ingratiate ourselves to the culture around us, thinking that if we can manage to avoid condemnation, that we will be protected, we will be safe as we navigate life as exiles in this world. Or maybe we are tempted to think that as long as we are faithful to God, He will keep us out of harm's way. That's probably the most alluring of all these temptations, One writer that has written a book on this describes this as the most natural theology to all human beings, the idea that as long as we give God what He wants, He will give us what we want. In fact, that He will be obligated to give us what we want. It's such a natural habit that, that for many who identify as Christians, this is not a temptation, but the very core of their whole theology. Whole movements in the history of the church have embraced this way of thinking, that as long as I give God what He wants, that I'm entitled to get from him what I want. But Daniel knew that all of these paths only lead to a false refuge, that they might have prevented disaster for one day, but afterward he would be in danger again. What he knew, and what this whole book helps us to remember, is that there is only one true refuge. So when he rose in the morning... The stone was removed from the lion's den, and Darius calls down into the darkness. Daniel is able to say, God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Daniel's judge has considered him and declared him innocent. Not because he is a perfect person, but because he put all of his hope in God's power and mercy. That's exactly what verse 23 tells us, that no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And as the scene comes to a close, Daniel's accusers are subjected to the punishment that they tried to inflict on Daniel himself. And like the other kings in the narrative before him, Darius declares the glory of Judah's God, who is himself the safety and security that Daniel needed. Darius is so amazed by what he's just seen, so amazed that this man who was thrown into a lion's den, is about to walk out of it alive, 
that this man who just signed a law that said that everyone in his nation was required to pray only to him is now commanding, in verse 26, that every part of his kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. It's an incredible about-face for Darius. He is amazed by what he's seen, astounded by it, but Daniel is not. Daniel is nonplussed. For him, this is the sort of thing he's seen all his life. It is the message that his parents sent him with on the day that they chose his name, that there is one true refuge from the perils of this world, and it is in God himself. Daniel knew that in Babylon and now in Persia, that God would provide a refuge for him, that even if he lost his life, that refuge would remain because God had promised one day to provide a lasting refuge to protect his people in their exile and to bring them out of it. That is why he prayed facing west and why he did not panic even though he knew that that night he might lose his life to a hungry lion. That hope was rooted in the promise of God and it is answered in the life and death of God's own son who came to bring his people into a new kingdom. Throughout his ministry, Jesus proved his own power, the sort that Daniel had seen on display throughout his life. Jesus healed the sick, he cast out demons, he fed the hungry, he raised the dead. His power was immense. And that seems to have really struck home for his disciples in one particular moment of his ministry when they were out on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a ferocious storm. The disciples think that they're all about to die. The storm is so violent, they think that the boat is about to flip over and they are all going to die. They're in full panic mode, hoping that the boat doesn't capsize. Meanwhile, Jesus is asleep, unconcerned. When they finally wake him up, they ask, don't you care that we're all about to die? And he steps up and does the last thing that they expect and rebuked the wind and the sea, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. It is a display of great power. And even though the disciples are now safe, they know that the storm is not going to flip the boat over and kill them. The text tells us that they were filled with great fear, saying to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm that was about to kill them because they realized that as formidable as that storm was, Jesus was greater. As ferocious as that storm had been, Jesus was mightier. He swept it away with a word. It's the reason that Daniel did not fear the lions because he feared the one whose power is greater. Jesus wields a power that terrified the disciples even when it was used for their good. He is a king whose power is greater than Babylon, greater than Persia, greater than the entire expanse of creation, and greater than death itself. It was an awe-inspiring power, and when the disciples glimpsed it, they were terrified to be sharing a boat with Jesus. Who could stand against him? Who could possibly challenge him, this man who can calm a storm with a word? In that moment, they knew that nothing in all of existence would stand a chance against him, and they began to wonder what he would do with this power that he wields. But just a few chapters later, Jesus explains that he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His is the greatest power and authority the world has ever known, and he exercises the infinite power of his heavenly throne to save his people and even to become their ransom from death, exchanging his life for ours. 
That's the hope that Daniel built his life on. And it is the reason that we rejoice to remember that God is our judge, that it is good news that God is our judge. That message is the courage and the comfort that we need as we live as exiles in this world. So that even if we find ourselves in a 20th century lion's den, whatever that may be, we will not seek safety in a false refuge that will only lead to disappointment and a new danger tomorrow, but that we will look to God and to His Son, in whose name we are rescued once and for all time by our merciful judge and defender. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful this morning for the book of Daniel and the encouraging message that we have seen in these pages. We pray that as we carry on as citizens of your kingdom and residents of this world, we will remember your love and your grace and the power that you have to accomplish both. We pray that you would make us faithful and obedient, not out of obligation or a false belief that we could earn your favor, but because we know that you love us already. And with you, we have hope and a lasting refuge. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.